This episode is with special guest Cynthia Lubin Langtu, who is a Haitian American licensed clinical psychologist and professor. And in this episode, we talk about knowing and unknowing, being known, how we decolonize knowing and qualitative research, being a mother, as well as believing in yourself and the power of your own being to bring forth impact in the world. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Embody Podcast, a show about remembering and embodying your true nature, inner wisdom, embodied healing, and self-love. My name is Candace Wu, and I'm a holistic healing facilitator, intuitive coach, and artist sharing my personal journey of vulnerability, offering meditations and guided healing support, and having co-creative conversations with healers and wellness practitioners from all over the world. It's with great honor to introduce our guest today, Dr. Cynthia Lubin-Langtu. She's just a wonderful, vibrant human being who cares so much about people. And I appreciate so much her ability to just be herself, bring who she is to the table, and to uh, love people around her and give the gifts that she, uh, she is in herself. I especially enjoyed the pieces of the conversation around her alter ego and her grandmothers and the lineage and what gifts they've given her and how she's shaped her way of seeing the world because of her ancestry. Cynthia is a Haitian-American licensed clinical psychologist and full professor in the clinical psychology program at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, and she's also served as a supervising psychologist at Mount Sinai Hospital and currently consults with their doctoral clinical training program. And on top of that, she's also a volunteer psychologist and clinical supervisor with the Marjorie Kovler Center for Survivors of Torture. She provides training on psychological trauma for the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights, and her clinical work reflects a strong systemic and community sensibility that integrates a relational cultural perspective. So much of our clinical work has been helping youth, adults, families, and communities utilize their own resources to heal from trauma. And in this conversation, you'll you'll hear exactly that, especially at the end of our conversation, where she speaks about uncovering our own knowing and trusting in who we are. So let's jump into the conversation. Cynthia, I'm so thrilled to have you here today. You are a Haitian-American licensed clinical psychologist, and you're a full professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, among other aspects of your professional career, where you're a volunteer psychologist and clinical supervisor at the Kovler Center. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have just plenty of conversations in the air around youth violence, betrayal trauma in the Black community and around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, supporting families and children in natural disasters, advocating for families, healing trauma, working with couples. And the first question I have for you, Cynthia, is tell me about Harriet the Spy. 
your alter <laughs> ego. <laughs> oh, I love that question. So, you know, as a kid, I just lived in my head and particularly as an immigrant child, just trying to figure out the world. Books were everything for me. Uh, and there were so many wonderful characters with whom I related and connected. Um, but Harriet the Spy uh, just sparked for me this inquisitiveness, right? There's a part mm -hmm. uh, in the book where she's writing and writing and writing in her little notebook. And she says, I want to know everything, everything, everything. That is why I am a spy. And that reverberated <laughs> in my core because I just thought, that's me. I want to know everything. I want to know everything, everything, everything. Um, and yes. in large part, that's why I'm a clinical psychologist. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I think that, 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 connecting with this strong female who had this deep curiosity and fed that curiosity in, in bizarre and strange ways uh, resonated for me so deeply as a child and continued, you know, on my quest yeah. to know and my continued quest to know as a clinical psychologist, but also as a researcher. I think that that stays with me still, like that desire to deeply know, but also be known you know. Um, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So yeah, that's me and Harriet the Spy. I read this book every it. couple of years. Oh, <laughs> I can see that she, Harriet the Spy in you is just well alive yeah. and just feels, feels like she's just thriving. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you see yourself on your journey right now? Yeah, so I'm at an interesting place in my journey, both as a professor and as a clinical psychologist and also as a researcher. You know, um, there was a lot of push as I was moving towards promotion. And there was a way that once I sort of um, achieved full professorship, if you will, and there are so few mm -hmm. women of color who do, um, that, mm -hmm. that that part hit me too, that, that it wasn't only for me, but, but for so many. And I felt my grandmothers, you know, who are no longer with us physically, but sit on my shoulders, right? But then also lift mm -hmm. up my arms. And there's a way that in my journey now, uh, I'm thinking about what I've always thought about what I have to offer, right? What I have to offer my clients, mm -hmm what I have to offer my students, but there's a way that I'm thinking more broadly about what I have to offer the field. And that can feel a little heady. Like, who am I to think that I can offer the field of psychology something? And yet there's so much that I've um, been offered and learned and engaged. And I feel like I'm in a different place of scope. Uh, and impact in terms of what I can offer. And that's where I am now. Mm -hmm. I'm at this precipice where all of these ideas have been swirling and I've been working and doing and offering, but all of these ideas are swirling and, and converging in really interesting and beautiful ways um, and, and figuring out what's next for me, figuring out how I want to use my scope of influence and knowledge to really um, impact in the way that I think that I'm meant to impact and to not shrink back from that. Because even saying that out loud feels haughty, mm -hmm. 
right? And there's a way that as a Black woman, um, I've been taught my place, if you will, or I guess folks have tried to teach me my place. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I've embodied my grandmother's places, if you will, um, and, and understood that there's a reason that I am here in this space. Um, and embodying what I do and that my life is meant to impact in a particular way. And that I, not only can I not shrink back, but I have a moral obligation to not shrink back from the space that I'm meant to step into. And that's, that's that's a lot to hold. It's a lot to hold. And, you know, I'm a mom of two boys. And, and of course, that's a role that I embody, um, hopefully as a primary role, they see that. Um, But then balancing all of these other ways that I think that I'm, I'm meant to be in the world, and in our field and and in people's lives, but then also on pages and other places, uh, is is the precipice I'm on right now. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it feels like almost like a beautiful, I don't know, challenge, a beautiful struggle mm-hmm. almost, but like the, the human experience of not shrinking back yes, and being in yourself, being with what you have here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm reminded of, I watched a video of you speaking. Oh my. And yeah, I've watched a couple of them, <laughs> but one of them, you, um, shared a quote by Margaret Mead. Mm. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like bringing that back now as you're saying, who am I to, to think I can make an impact? And who are you not to? Right, right. I also right. wonder, when you said that quote in, the video, in that um, speaking engagement you had, Mm-hmm. You teared up almost, or it felt yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I wondered what touches you about this. You know, it's funny that you say that because I feel really emotional right now, yeah. just thinking about that. Because I think there's a way that we can feel so disconnected and alone in this world, and yeah. feel like it's so big, and particular in this season in the U.S. where it can just feel somewhat hopeless, right? Yeah. And it can right. feel like, well, what is my smile going to do? What is my oh. banding together with my students going to do? What is my working in my coalition for immigrant mental health going to do? Um, and then it reminds mm-hmm. me of every single movement, every single change that's occurred has happened because people believed and came together. And it wasn't necessarily a you know, a huge swell of people, but as people who have a a sense of social justice, a sense of integrity, a sense of of purpose, and they come together in that purpose and they band together and they they lift each other up, you know, as one person sort of starts to not believe they're lifted up by one and they're the ones who lift up the next day. And I think of all of the social movements. I mean, it's Black History Month, right? I've been having mm-hmm. these conversations with my kids. Um, you know, I think about our, you know, current immigration um, situation, crisis, emergency. There are many ways that we can think about it. Um, but I think about the work that I'm doing with the Coalition on Immigrant Mental Health and how each day, you know, we're, we're chipping away 
um, at some of the injustice that's going on. And it is actually making a difference. I think of all the movements across time and space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and how it was always spurred on by a small group of people who said, you know what, we're not going to stand for this anymore, right? I think of my work mm-hmm. right now. Um, part of what like really, I, I was at a conference, I'm on the board of um, Point Source Youth um, and our aim is to end youth homelessness. And there's a way that when I first, you know, became a member of the board, I thought, yeah, we're going to work to help some kids who don't have a home. And in that moment, looking at that room, at that conference, when I read that quote, what got me emotional was here was 500 people, right? Mm -hmm. And I looked out into the audience and each and every one of us in that moment believed that we would end youth homelessness in the U.S. And there's no way that that was so... Like, I felt like I was levitating because I believe and I believe that wholeheartedly today that we will end youth homelessness. And and it's this group of people who've been chipping away in their offices with one or two trans youth who don't know where to go or what to do or who are living on the street or and for us to all come together, having had hopeless moments. But in that moment, to look into each other's eyes and say, this room of people will end youth homelessness, period, full stop. Is heavy. I can even feel that yeah. here. It's and now heavy. It's, yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and that's the thing. Like, that's, that's what happens. That's the power of love and purpose and community. Um, so yeah, I get emotional whenever I think about it, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And just that little desire can become united with so many other pieces of people that are desiring that too. It just grows. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So we want to swing back to knowing yeah. and Harriet the spy <laughs> <laughs> and wanting to know everything in the world. Yeah. And it, you are working on in your qualitative research, mm-hmm. ways of knowing. Yeah. Sounds like you're challenging ways of knowing. Can you tell us? Yeah, that? there's so many. There are a couple of different things floating around for me. And um, one of them is this idea. I have a couple of ideas for some books that I think um, will help us to tap into how we transform. So one of them actually came from one of my students who is now a professor and teaching at the Chicago School. Um, but it's called interlogs. And the whole idea of an interlog is a process that happens while you are researching that transforms who you are and that in turn transforms the work. So I'll give you an example Mm -hmm. of this interlogue. I'll give you two briefly. So the student of mine, now Professor Dr. Elena Pinkston, was working on this beautiful qualitative dissertation in which she um, was uh, asking first-time mothers their phenomenological experience of showing. And that was the title of her dissertation, which I thought was great at the time. And she discloses this in her dissertation. So I feel comfortable disclosing it with you um, mm-hmm. and your audience. Um, she, um, her aunt, who was close in age to her, was pregnant. 
And so she's doing this dissertation, talking to pregnant women and her aunt is pregnant. It's really exciting. And during her um, dissertation process, her aunt actually loses the baby. Um, oh. It was devastating. Oh. And she had to hit pause and she didn't know what to do with that. Because here she was continuing in these interviews with these women who were so excited and and their babies would be born. You know, it was a really hard time for her. So she hit pause and she wrote a chapter called Interlogs. And it was how she wrestled with her own, right, transformation mm -hmm. as a result of the interviews of these women, but also this event that happened in her family's life. And so she wow. wrote this chapter called Interlogs, and she included it in her dissertation because it indelibly influenced the way that she viewed the rest of the interviews, but also how mm -hmm. she interpreted her data, understood her data, uh, and then moved forward with the dissertation. Uh, and so this idea of interlogs became so powerful to me. Uh, and, I you know, I've had several other students who have had significant challenges. And the way that it comes up, it's really interesting. Um, it's typically a time delay. I had another student who uh, is Muslim and was writing a dissertation looking at uh, millennials, uh, millennial Muslims um, and their, the impact of 9-11 on their day-to-day -day lives, right? Mm -hmm. Beautiful dissertation really important, necessary, needed. We, we, we need to understand their phenomenological experience. Well, it, it took this student much longer than she had anticipated. And there were all these stories that she told herself, right, about why, about her writing, mm -hmm. about not being committed, about all, all kinds of stories. But then when we sat down, she had actually completed the interviews. She's a great writer. And, and we were trying to figure out, like, why this wasn't getting done. Well, she was interviewing people who looked like her, who had her uh -huh. experience. Uh -huh. At her dissertation defense, we ended up getting her moving and had that conversation and had a conversation, which was a, a, actually an interview about her own interlog, her own transformation, her own reflection. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're able to move her through the dissertation successfully. And she's out practicing now doing wonderful work with her community and, and with many others as well. But that would not have happened without that level of reflection on the stories that she was telling herself. I mean, to, to give you a sense of it, like during her dissertation, uh, we had her read some of the um, quotes some clips, if you will, from her mm -hmm. dissertation. And she got so choked up that she couldn't. And so I took the transcripts and I went to read and I got choked up. Oh. And I'm not a millennium Muslim woman, yeah. you know? Like it was the things that she was reading, the stories that she was being told were so heavy to hold as a researcher. Wow. And they were her own story. Right. In many ways. Yeah. And, and right. it was critical for 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 the transformative process of the dissertation, the transformative process of doing research to be codified and to be reflected and to 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 understand how we are embodying a new way 
of being a researcher as a result of what we're learning in our research. We can't be removed. We're not removed. This idea that we're this objective researcher is a, is a fallacy. And I want to debunk that. Oh, thank goodness. Because it's like we are absolutely part of that story of what we're seeing and researching. And of course, it always comes from a specific lens. So the more we can be honest about that and congruent with that, sounds right. like we can right. glean so much more out of the whole right. understanding. Yeah. And clarifying our own lens, right? And clarifying our own lens. And I, I teach qualitative research and I have this soapbox around validity and rigor. And it's not because I want my students to get published, although if they want to, that's great. But for me, right? Mm -hmm. Clarifying one's lens, which is for me what rigor and validity and research in general is about, is about the primacy of the voice of our participants. And our participants come to us and they share these powerful stories and they trust that we will represent them in a way that will make a difference in the world. And it's critical yeah. as researchers, not just qualitative, I would say quantitative too, mm -hmm. as researchers that we clarify our lens so that the clarity of the data is the participant's voice and not our own. So yes. yeah, yeah, that's all so important to me. And particularly because much of the research that I end up doing ends up being with um, groups of people who have traditionally been marginalized or treated mm -hmm. poorly um, or targeted in a negative way. So people of color or other folks um, in, in, in the world. And, and so for me, the idea of being a researcher and training and teaching researchers who would see people wholly, who would, you know, have a sense of sa the sacredness of somebody offering you their story or their information and take mm. that seriously is so important. Decolonizing mm -hmm. methodologies, right? I've been wrestling with that. Like, what does it mean to decolonize our work? What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. I've been wrestling with it a lot. In many ways, it's about understanding the unique, but also situated perspective of the person who's sitting in front of us, but also recognizing the ways that we've been steeped in a particular way mm. of knowing, right? And how to unpack for myself, for ourselves, that way of knowing. Um, so I'll give you an example. I was having a consultation around a dissertation with someone this week. And uh, so we, this person has a wonderful dissertation topic they and their dissertation chair have a different idea about how to work through it. But their question is a clearly qualitative question. Uh, and so this person's question was, well, what group will I compare it to? And I said, well, who says you have to compare in this mm -hmm. particular dissertation? You know, this mm -hmm. group of people, this targeted, marginalized group of people is one that you have a unique niche perspective on. You have a sense of why they haven't been asked these important questions about their teaching strategies, right? Why do we need to compare them to another group, right? 
their voice right. is uniquely important, but there's a way that that this person has been steeped in sort of the, the capitalistic Adam Smith wealth of nations, compare, contrast, there has to be a winner, yes. there has to be a loser, mm-hmm. right? Like all of those narratives are so deeply ingrained. And for me, decolonizing methodologies is unplugging from that and saying, this group of people has a really important story to tell us. Let's sit and focus on them. Period. No comparison. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think about what you're saying with research and mm-hmm. just broadening this to the idea of life and, you know, us as researchers in our own lives, us in- interacting with people and seeing what happens, us decolonizing our ways of seeing ourselves and others and the way we look at um, what we think we know and how our interlog, like the, I th- as if I'm getting you right, like what are, what goes on in us that influences how we see the other person? Yes, and, exactly. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, taking a step back for me, the whole idea, one of the reasons that it's so hard to to unpack decolonization is because I myself have been so steeped in in my ways of knowing. Right. Like I kiss my boys goodnight and say, you're the best. Mm-hmm. And my kids are great. They're awesome. <laughs> right. But like, why do they have to be the best? The best. No, you're the best, right? Like that's even like troubling that language for myself, right. right? Is another way of troubling the idea of decolonizing in my everyday life. Um, you know that the competition, right? Like that idea is a very Western way of being, and so how can I think about other ways of being in the world, giving my work? across the world. And I think for all of us to be um, troubling, right, the ways that we are steeped in knowing. And I think, you know, to go back to my grandmothers, um, you know, Stephanie um, is one of my grandmothers and Andrea is the other one. Mm -hmm. Um, These two women, and I love, I say this with pride, like neither of the two of them could read or write, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and and they're two, of course, of the most brilliant women that I knew, um, that I know. Uh, and and for and so for me, I knew at a very young age that they could not formally read or write, and that they were brilliant. Mm-hmm. So there was a way that when I got to grad school and I'm learning about assessment, right, mm-hmm. and learning about other ways of knowing, I thought, well, yeah, of course there are people uh, who are smart yes. who don't know how to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my grandmothers, right? And even my grandmother, Andrea, I've never met anybody who could recite more Psalms than she could from the Bible. She was a deeply spiritual woman. And, and when I think about that, right, like for someone who didn't read or write, but then to memorize the scripture and hold them in her heart, because that was important to her, how brilliant. Wow. And I always knew that. And so for me, there was a way that that I was always troubling sort of these rigid ways of knowing and and also unknowing um, and, and the wobbliness and the mm-hmm. unsteadiness of unknowing and how that unknowing place is the birthplace of creativity. Like you can't 
be fully creative and like burst forth from a place of like solid knowledge all the way through. There has to be a place of unpacking, unknowing, of wobbliness, right? In which we get steady, Uh, right? Because that is so important. So like all of it, the knowing, the unknowing, uh, and, and moving through and finding courage to sit in that unknowing, wobbly place is another part of sort of my unpacking of knowledge and ways of knowing, right? Now that I think in my clinical work is certainly present and my research is present, but in my life, you know, as a parent, holy cow, I always joke that I was an amazing clinical psychologist, child psychologist before I had kids. <laughs> but now I'm like, I hope I didn't break them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I'm doing an okay job, but I check in with them every so often. Am I doing okay, guys? <laughs> are you? How are you feeling? <laughs> you know, I, I said to my son once we were... Um, just cuddling once. I said, sweetie, how are you doing? You know, am I doing okay as your mom? And he's 12 and really sweet and we're cuddling. And then he gets up and he looks like he's 20. And he looks at me, he's like, I think you're doing the best you can. (laughs) (laughs) It was like such a sweet moment. And he looked... So, but he was so honest. So wisdom right? coming and through. Like, yeah, you know, there's some pl- there's some room for improvement, but you're doing okay. You know, oh. um, but also acknowledging that he gets that I'm trying, right? So I think um, that that being a parent has certainly been, um, uh, you know, a wonderful wobbly place for me. Mm, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And uh, I, I'm still I'm learning so much, but then it translates into other places in my life, too. Um, and and as a teacher, it helps me to sit with my students in their places of discomfort, um, as they're unknowing, and to to, mm-hmm. to 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 walk as a as in companionship with them, right? As yes. they're unknowing, and to right. trust their unknowing process. Um, and and I tell them holds such a safe space. Then. Right, I I tell them you will get frustrated with me because you'll come to me, and want an answer, and you'll get more questions, and you'll leave cursing at me under your breath, and then you'll come back feeling so proud that you uncovered the answers that you already know that oh, you already yes. have right that you mm. felt like you wanted me to tell you but there would be no no sense of pride no sense of ownership no sense of i did this um yeah we have yeah. to find the answers for ourselves mm. the ones that are most important yeah, is what i'm yeah, getting from that yeah 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 so there are ways that 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 whole idea weaves its way but it's also because i have a firm belief that we have so much of what we need to know and that we need to uncover it and unpack it and come to our truths and and that there's an importance in silence and Mm. sitting with to uncover the things that are already there and so that's why i mean one of the reasons i appreciate your podcast so much because you focus on on the sense of oneself 
and meditation and sitting with because there's so much knowledge that we already have in our spirits and our core from across time and space. The ancestors, right? Like are here with us, have been here with us. They knew us before we knew. And we ourselves are ancestors that know our great, great grandchildren. And we're already offering something to them, right? Like in this Mm -hmm. moment. And it's like, when I think about that level of connection, I think like, how can I feel lost? How can I feel lost when I'm so connected to the past and to the future? You know, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful image and and energy, like the connection of what's already there, anchoring us to who we are. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I just have one last question for you, Cynthia. <laughs> what's your indulgence or guilty pleasure right now? <laughs> Oh, trashy novels. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I won't name them. But oh. say, the last one I got from the library, I thought, really? Um, is he not wearing a shirt? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like we have to let go somewhere, you know, when the rest of our lives are so important and... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And taking our energies. Yeah, something has to give. Absolutely. (laughs) And um, I love them. I indulge. Of course, I have, you know, my book club with our high end books and my psychology books and my trauma books. But yeah, the trashy novels, they're my indulgence. (laughs) So if I see like a book covered in like a black paper. Just because uh, to to uh, be hidden from the, from next to your trauma books, um, I may take a peek. <laughs> gladly, gladly. Oh, funny! Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun talking with you, Cynthia, and you bring so much wisdom, vibrance, and life. You're such an advocate for people, and I just appreciate you so much. Thank you so much. I am honored. I have such a respect for you and your work uh, and your podcast that to be um, asked to be a part of this community, um, a deep, deep honor and a sacred time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you, Cynthia? Sure. So I um, can be reached. My email is clangtu at the chicagoschool.edu or Cynthia, period, Lubin, period, Langtu, um, at Gmail. I hope that you can offer those links. My LinkedIn uh, is also a profile for me, and I have a, Great. A, a page on the Chicago School. So all of those are places that you can reach me, uh, and feel free to email me or you know send a LinkedIn message. Beautiful. We'll put all those on the show notes so it'll be easy, easily accessible. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored that Cynthia was able to be on the show today. Thank you so much, Cynthia. And thank you all out there listening. Um, I hope that this was interesting for you, especially her conversation about interlogs and how transformation, our own transformation affects how we're seeing the world. And she specifically was speaking on research, but I feel as we spoke about, touched about briefly, how that is so much a reality in our in our life right now that we're waking up to, that we are showing up more. I'm seeing this happen more and more with people, that they're showing up more with who they are and what they're experiencing as valuable. 
and not something to hide and pretend that we are this blank slate and pretend that we um, we just come with nothing and are seeing the world completely neutrally. That's just not the case. Of course, we're affected by who we are and what energy and material we're looking at outside of us, what kind of person we're experiencing outside of us. And it's that kind of connection with ourself and interaction with what comes up that is the healing work. That is the power of what we, what energies we bring to the table and what wants to be seen and uncovered so that connection can happen with even more, not just ourselves, but with others. And it's valuable. It's worthwhile. So thank you so much, Cynthia, for bringing that to the table and your important work in the world. I encourage you to check out part two of this episode, especially if you're interested in trauma, in relationships, and also in betrayal. We talk about feeling brokenhearted where things don't feel complete and that there's an opportunity to rebuild within trauma or experiences that are very challenging. We also explore our ancestors and how the past and the future can anchor and ground us and resource us in the now as well as how in relationships, in intimate relationships, it's often that there's trauma involved when things become challenging. We explore true intimacy as well as boundaries and betrayal trauma that's on a micro and macro level with people as well as in the Black community. If you're interested in looking at interlogs for yourself and how that can touch into your personal life, go ahead and uh, look out for her guided experience that's going to come out later this week where you can be guided by Cynthia through this process of looking at your own inner transformation and exploring how that's coming to life for you. If you're just listening in and you want to find the link for that, you can find it at CandiceWu.com slash Cynthia. Cynthia spelled C-Y-N-T-H-I-A. I'm leaving today's conversation with a great deal of energy and love and most of all acceptance. As Cynthia was talking about um, unknowing and the ways that we've been steeped in a certain kind of knowing, which I have too, it's very important that we're embracing all of the parts of ourselves because that brings us forward to more knowing and a different kind of compassion for ourselves and each other ways of compassion and being seen, things being seen and unsilenced that bring us to a greater fullness. So with that, I look forward to seeing you next time on the Embody podcast. Mm-hmm.